You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. If we were to take about two minutes each and have each person who's sitting here this morning come up here and share your testimony of how you came to saving knowledge in Jesus Christ, and we were to listen to one right after another, another, I think you would notice a couple of things. First, you would notice how nervous people get when they get up in front of people. But second, you would notice how many different testimonies there are and how unique each conversion experience is to the person who was converted. There are so many variables in how we come to faith in Christ and how we um, end up trusting Christ and all of the circumstances and events that God uses to bring us to that point of believing in Him. You would find that some of you here this morning were, were at the top of the world when you came to faith in Christ. You maybe were in a business executive and had all the money that you could want or, or dream of or ask for and you had all of the worldly pleasures and all of the worldly provisions that a heart could ever desire and yet there was something empty, something missing, some loneliness, some unfulfilled void that just morphed into a conviction and morphed into a desire for something else that you realize that although you had all of the earthly goods, there were certain spiritual things that you were lacking. Other people, when they come to faith in Christ, come to Christ from the bottom of the barrel, not the top of the world. Some people's lives take them through rehab center after rehab center, jail after jail, and prison after prison until they finally are flat on their back, and that's the only time that they seem to look up. And having exhausted the their efforts at depravity and satisfying every longing and every need, they finally come to Christ, and they're usually at the very bottom of their world when they do. Some people come to Christ, and it's a very intellectual journey. They, they look at the evidences, they see all of the arguments for the Christian faith, and they approach it from the perspective of a critic or a cynic who's looking for answers, and they want their questions answered, and so they, they listen to all of the evidences, and then they finally sort of make up their mind, or they decide, or they they come to the conclusion that Christianity is the real McCoy, and they place faith in Christ. I think of men like Josh McDowell, who have testimonies like that. Others don't care what the evidences are. They're not concerned about the apologetic witness that an individual could give for the faith. They're not concerned about any of that. They just know that Christ can offer them something they need, and that's forgiveness. And they're not concerned about all of the questions about the nature of God and the different arguments against Christianity and the Bible and how they might be answered. Some are intellectual, some are non-intellectual. Some of you were raised in a Christian home. Some of you were raised in a non-Christian home. Some of you came to faith early in life. Others came to faith much later in life. Some of you heard the gospel over a long period of time and there was a, a long time when God was working in your life and bringing you to a point, sort of drawing you and working in you until He could bring you to that point where you would trust Christ. Others, it seems like that drawing or that work was much shorter, maybe a couple days or a couple weeks. Some people, like me, are so thick-headed that they had to hear the gospel a hundred times before they trusted Christ. I I can't even imagine how many times I heard the gospel from people who were in this church and members of this church 
who were ministering to me and reaching out to me before I finally trusted Christ. Other people are like Lydia. They hear it one time and the Lord opens their heart to respond to the thing spoken and they trust Christ just like that, having heard the gospel once. All those variables and all of those things combined in different ways to give each individual a unique conversion experience. And we haven't even mentioned anything of the people who were involved in it, whether it was friends or relatives or siblings or complete strangers or the medium by which the gospel came to us, whether it was by radio or television or internet or a magazine or a book or a tract or a billboard alongside the freeway. All of those things combine to make each conversion experience unique. Now, often we notice the unique elements of how each of us comes to faith in Christ. But friends, there is so much that is all the same about every testimony. Have you ever stopped to consider that? We all heard the same gospel, the message of our salvation. It's the same message of the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Christ, and that you're a sinner, and that you need salvation, and that Christ is the only way. All of us heard the same word of God that brought conviction. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. Peter says we have been born again, not by a seed which is perishable, but the imperishable, that is the living and enduring, abiding Word of God. All of us were brought to faith in the same way in that it was the work of the Spirit of God who caused us, James 1.18 says, to be, or 1 Peter 1.3, who caused us to be born again to a living hope. It was the Spirit of God who took the Word of God and brought it with conviction to our hearts, confronting us with our sin. All of us reached a point of conviction where we recognized our sin. All of us repented and turned from our sin. All of us believed the saving gospel. All of us have trusted in the same Savior. And the results for all of us is the same. All of us were chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. All of us were adopted as sons into God's family. All of us have been given the same Holy Spirit, placed in the same body of Christ, been given spiritual gifts for service, been adopted as His children, sealed with the Spirit, raised up and seated with Christ in the heavenly places. All of that we share in common. Isn't that a wonderful salvation? Paul's salvation was unique. Now, I don't mean unique in the sense that if we all got up here and started sharing our testimony, we might find somebody here say, well, he has a really unique salvation testimony of how he came to faith in Christ. That kind of stands out from everybody else in the church. That's sort of unique. Not, not unique along that order. When I say Paul's salvation testimony, his experience of conversion was unique. Friends, I mean it was unique. I mean it was different of a different order than, than is typical. It's not normative in any way. It was attended by such supernatural, such divine, such powerful demonstrations and phenomena that I don't know of any individual in the history of the church who has had a conversion experience like Saul of Tarsus. Many of them have probably been just as emotional. Many of them have probably been just as powerful, powerful spiritually speaking, and overwhelming in that sense. But I don't know anybody who could say, oh, my testimony is just like Paul. I was driving down the freeway and all of a sudden I hit the floorboard of my car. And, and there I was lying there in a bright light from heaven and I saw the throne and I saw the glory of Christ and He spoke to me in words that were unmistakable and there were witnesses to this. I doubt if a sing- At least I can't say that. And I doubt if a single individual who's sitting, sitting here this morning or a single individual that you know could honestly say that his conversion was like Saul of Tarsus. You know why his was different? You know why Saul's was different? He's a different man. That kind of goes without saying, doesn't it? He had a different ministry. A different calling. 
Nobody here is called to be an apostle. Nobody here is called to exercise apostolic authority. Nobody in this church or sitting here today or alive today is called to exercise the type of authority and to give the type of revelation and to demonstrate his calling and act as a spokesman like Saul of Tarsus was. And so his conversion was very fitting to who he was and what he was doing and what God was marking him out for. You should have your Bibles open in your lap to Acts chapter 22. We're going to look this morning at the Apostle Paul's own description of his conversion. Now, if you're familiar with the book of Acts, or if you've been with us from the beginning, then you know that this is not the first time that we've looked at his conversion story, is it? It occurs back in Acts chapter 9. Now, the unique thing about the conversion account of Saul of Tarsus, listen, this is significant. It's not given to us just once in Scripture, which would have been sufficient for us to understand what had gone on nor is it given to us twice in Scripture. It is repeated for us three times by the same author in the same book. Now Luke could have spent time telling us about a lot of other things that happened in the other church and the life of Paul, but he, in his economical way, restricted as he is with space, he gives us this account of Paul's conversion on three separate occasions. In Acts chapter 9, it is just related from the third-person perspective. It is as if you're reading the story. It happened to him. He did this. He heard this. He went here. He did this. And this happened. Sort of in the flow of the development of the early church. After the martyrdom of Stephen, as Paul is on his way to Damascus, just like it's part of the story. And then Paul sort of disappears for a couple of chapters, and he reappears again in Acts chapter 13. The second time that we get Paul's conversion account is in Acts chapter 22. And here it is delivered... In the first person, Paul describing in his own words what happened, and he is describing this to the Jews in the temple as part of his defense. You remember he's up on the stairs entering into the fortress of Antonia in the temple precinct, surrounded by this crowd, and he has asked the Roman commander of the cohort to give him permission to address the crowd. And so Paul gives his testimony of how he came to faith in Christ and what Christ said to him and what Christ commissioned him to do. The third time that we're given the conversion account of the Apostle Paul is in Acts chapter 26. And there it is part of his defense to King Agrippa. And we'll look at that when we get to it. Each time the story is told, there are details that are included in each account that are not included in the other three. So as you're reading through the text, if I mention something that happened or something that we know happened with Paul, you can check Acts chapter 9 or Acts chapter 26 for those details because I'm going to try and sort of put some of those details all together as we go through the text. So Acts chapter 22, we're going to begin in verse 6. Follow along with me as I read, and we'll read through the end of verse 11. But it happened that as I was on my way approaching Damascus about noontime, a very bright light suddenly flashed from heaven all around me, and I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, Who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus, the Nazarene, whom you're persecuting. And those who were with me saw the light, to be sure, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, What shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, Get up and go on into Damascus, and there you will be told all that has been appointed for you to do. But since I could not see because of the brightness of that light, I was led by the hand by those who were with me and came into Damascus. Now the fact that his conversion experience is related three times tells us something about how important Luke saw this account. This day, while Saul is on his way from Jerusalem to Damascus, as he is approaching the city about noon, something happens that for Luke 
is so significant that he mentions it three times. Not once, not twice, but three times. Luke wants us to understand, and I think we should, that this day upon which Christ confronted Saul of Tarsus was one of those days upon which history turned. It is probably the most significant day in the history of the church. And I would argue one of the most significant days in the history of the world. That is setting aside the ministry and events of the life of our Lord. Just as rank and file sinners go, average human beings like you and me and Saul of Tarsus, this is the most significant day in church history and one of the most significant days in all of world history. Imagine, if you will, and I think this is difficult, if not impossible, to even begin to imagine what the world would be like if not for the influence of Saul of Tarsus. Can you imagine that? No Luther. No Reformation. Without Paul, you don't have any of that. What would Christianity be like without his influence? Difficult to even fathom that. That's why it's so significant. That's why Luke mentions it three times. Now, Paul has already prepared us for understanding what it is that happened to him on the Damascus Road, because up in verses 1 through 5, do you remember he described his conduct before he became a believer? He says, I was born in Tarsus. I was raised in Jerusalem. I was educated by the, 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 the best, the brightest, the most revered, respected rabbi of the time, Gamaliel, strictly according to the law of our fathers. He was exceeding in Judaism beyond many of his contemporaries. He was a rising star. He was zealous for the law, zealous for the tradition, zealous for the nation, so zealous for his God that this upstart sect called Christianity, in his mind, threatened all of the things that he held dear. All of the things that he had sworn his life to uphold, sworn his life to study and to promote and to teach and to advance, all of that was threatened by this cult, this sect, this group known as the Christians or the way. And so Saul in his zeal set himself, set his heart, set his mind, and poured all of his emotional, mental, spiritual, and physical resources into destroying the church. He says, I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, and a violent aggressor. That's how he describes himself. He describes himself as trying to destroy the faith. And he was thus engaged in this. He went to somebody that he knew well, Caiaphas, the high priest, and he got letters from Caiaphas giving him permission to go to the synagogues in Damascus and to round up the believers there and to bring them back to Jerusalem to punish them and to imprison them in Jerusalem. And so he started off. Not content to keep his persecution of the Christian church in Jerusalem, he was going to take it to the ends of the earth if necessary to stamp out this threat to him and to his way of life. Verse 6, Paul says, But it happened that as I was on my way approaching Damascus, about noontime a very bright light suddenly flashed from heaven all around me. Now what I want you to notice there, folks, is that Paul, or Saul, and I'm going to use those two terms interchangeably here, Paul, when he was converted, was engaged in the act of persecution. As he says to Agrippa in recounting his testimony, as I was thus engaged, I had permission, he had the letters in one hand, and he was walking into Damascus, he was engaged in the act of persecution when Christ confronted him. Paul was not sitting around considering the claims of Christ, thinking to himself, maybe I should give up this persecution gig and start preaching. This persecution thing could take me a long ways from home for long periods of time. Maybe I should instead become a believer. He was not thinking that way. 
He was not warming up to Christianity. He was not softening to the message of the Gospel. He was not warming up to Christians. He wasn't considering in his mind at all the claims of Christ, the person of Christ, the message of the Gospel, none of that. By Paul's own testimony, Christ arrested him while he was engaged in the act. His heart, his mind, his will, everything was poured into this act of persecuting Christ. And you will not understand anything Paul writes, and you will not understand anything about his life, his ministry, or his writing, his preaching, unless you understand this. In Paul's mind, he was called to be an apostle by the will of God. There was no will of man, no human agency, no I was sat around and I considered the claims of Christ and I made this decision and I was warming up. There was no long process that was unfolding here, friends. He was engaged in the act of persecution when Christ stopped him and said, that's enough. It's over and it stops now. There was no warming up process. That's why when Paul describes his act of Salvation, the act of salvation and his act of being called as an apostle, he always says, I was called to be an apostle by the will of God. He set me apart from my mother's womb, and in due time, he called me to preach the faith that I once tried to destroy. No soft-heartedness here at all. No thinking through these things at all. He was thus engaged in persecution. Walking into Damascus, and I can't imagine what this would have been like. You can only picture it in your mind. Walking into Damascus with papers with Caiaphas' name on them in your right hand. And as Saul of Tarsus, you know that there are people in Damascus who know you're coming for them. Word has preceded him. You know that word has preceded him because when the Lord said to Ananias, Ananias, get up and go to the street called Straight and go to the house of Judas. There's a man there named Saul who, who I've appeared to. And what did Ananias say? Great, Lord, we've been waiting for this guy to get saved. No, Ananias didn't say that. Lord, I have heard from many about this man and how he's coming here to do your saints harm. How much harm he did to your saints at Jerusalem. He was a little scared to go to the street called Straight to the House of Judas and lay hands on a guy named Saul because his reputation had preceded him. People fled from his presence. And walking into Damascus as he's approaching the city, and I don't know if he was able, he was inside of the city or right outside the city gates, but suddenly a light shone from heaven. And Paul describes that light as brighter than the noonday sun. In fact, Paul says it was about noontime. That's significant because you can picture that Middle Eastern sun high in the sky, beating down in all of its heat. And you're approaching the city and everything is well lit up around you, hardly a shadow anywhere. And all of a sudden there flashes from heaven a light that makes the brightness of that sun look like the moon by comparison. And it is so bright that he is forced to the ground. Him and all of those who were traveling with him, Paul says, they all fell to the ground. The light drove them all to the ground. Now, I want you to picture yourself as a Jew sitting there listening to Saul describe this to you, or Paul describe this to you. You're in the temple, and when you hear him describe a light that is brighter than the noonday sun, that forces everybody to their face in the dirt, What do you assume is true? If you're a Jew, then you know that there is only one being who is capable of producing that kind of light. And you know that there is only one person who dwells in light unapproachable, who is the source of all light, and whose presence is light, and whose being is all likeness, and in him is no darkness at all. Who is that individual? Who is that person? Who is that being to the Jew? None other than the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the Creator, the Redeemer, the One, 
in whom is no darkness at all, but is only light. So as a Jew, you're instantly thinking to yourself when Paul mentions this light, he's saying that he is having an encounter, a revelation with God. That's what they're hearing. They're, he's having an encounter. He is seeing God because there's only one being who dwells in that kind of unapproachable light. A light in whose presence no mortal man can stand. And so Saul is driven to his face in the dirt because, verse 6 says, this very bright light suddenly flashed from heaven all around him and he fell to the ground. And he heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Now how do you answer that? I guess it depends on who you are. Who am I persecuting? This can't be Stephen. Who is this that's speaking to me? Notice the, notice the connection that Christ has with His church. Christ doesn't say, why are you persecuting my people? Why are you persecuting them? Why are you persecuting the way? Why are you persecuting those people? He doesn't say any of that. What does He say? Why are you persecuting me? See, friends, that, that shows us what Paul's real motivation is. All of the hatred that is directed toward Christians by non-Christians, be it the kind of persecution that Paul was engaged in, or be it the persecution that goes on today in countries where they don't enjoy the freedoms that we enjoy, whatever that animosity and that hatred and that hostility is that is vented on his church is vented on Christ. It's hostility that is really directed at him. And Saul knew this now, and he's being confronted with this reality. Why are you persecuting me? Saul now understands that everything that he's done to Stephen and to the men and women that he has been binding and punishing and persecuting and putting in prisons and casting his vote killing, all of that was done against Christ, against somebody else. And friends, when you suffer hostility or when you suffer persecution or when you suffer suffering, just because you're a Christian, don't think for a moment that the Lord holds you out here at arm's length. He feels those things. He's there in those things. The suffering of His church is His suffering. The suffering of His body is felt and experienced by Him. He takes that personally. Don't think for a moment that He is distant from the sufferings of His bride. He's not. When the church suffers, when the church is persecuted, Christ says, that's they're persecuting me. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Well, now I've got to ask a question. I've got to find out who this is that's speaking to me. Who are you, Lord? Now, I have a sneaking suspicion that Paul knew the answer to that question before he asked it. Why do I say that? Because he's already received a very big clue. Why are you persecuting me? What's that? Who is he persecuting? Christians. That tells Paul immediately who he's talking with and who is confronting him and who is addressing him. Who are you? Lord? Now could it be that this young Pharisee, probably between 30 and 35 years old at the time, 
schooled in the law of Gamaliel, taught by the best and the brightest, top of his class, rising star, advancing in Judaism beyond many of his contemporaries, zealous to the hilt, blameless, Hebrew of Hebrews, tribe of Benjamin, just as Jewish a Jew as you could be, zealous for the Lord as you could be, an example to anybody who wanted to be zealous for the Old Testament law and for the God of Israel. Saul was, a, was an example of that type of a man. Could it be that all of that was in vain? Could it be that all of that was wasted? Because if this proves to be Jesus of Nazareth, then could it be that He was the Son of God? Could it be that Caiaphas and the high priests and the elders and the nation had rejected their Messiah and had actually put to death the Prince of Life? If that is true, then his whole life has been wasted. His whole world has been turned upside down and he has found himself an enemy of the God he thought he loved. And I cannot imagine the hole in his stomach, that sinking feeling in the bottom of his heart, when he heard those words that I don't think he could have ever expected to hear, and friends, he certainly did not want to hear them, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you're persecuting. And all the wind would have to go right out of your sails. Why? Everything you have been living for, everything you have been doing, has just been erased. All of your pride, all of your self-sufficiency, all of your works of righteousness, all of your independence, all of your learning, all of your zeal, everything just got wadded up into a little tiny ball and tossed out the window. And you're standing or sitting, in, laying in the dirt. And Christ is saying to you, why are you doing this to me? You have no excuses. You have no justifications for it. And the Lord said, I'm Jesus whom you're persecuting. Now Paul inserts something, a detail in verse 9. He says, those who were with me saw the light to be sure, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. All of them hit the ground. All of them saw the light. All of them heard a voice. But those who were with Paul did not understand what was being spoken. In Acts 26, Paul says that Jesus was speaking to him in the Hebrew dialect. And I think it's safe to assume that the people traveling with him were temple police or some sort of law enforcement people who had the authority to go with him and to round up and imprison Christians. And although they would be speaking the Hebrew dialect and they would understand it, they saw the light and they heard a voice, but this vision, this revelation was not for them, it was for Saul. It was not geared to convert them. This is Christ interacting with Saul of Tarsus. This is Christ confronting him. And although everybody else could see the light, none of them were blinded by it. Paul was. They saw the light, but they did not see Christ. Paul says he saw Christ, the risen Christ. And although they heard the voice, they didn't understand the conversation that was going on. They didn't understand the words. Paul heard it crystal clear. And so for all those Jews who were standing there listening to Paul, he would say, if you want witnesses, there were men who were traveling with me. They had the same experience that I did to a degree. They hit the ground. They saw the light. They heard the voice. They can testify to you that something dynamic happened. They didn't hear what Christ said to me. I heard that. And what he said to me was, why are you persecuting me? And when I asked him who he is, he said, I'm Jesus of Nazareth whom you're persecuting. Now keep in mind that this group of Jews in this city that Paul is giving this account in had just put to death Jesus of Nazareth about uh, 25 years earlier. 
They just put him to death about 25 years earlier, and they put him to death for blasphemy. Now, when Paul said, I saw the bright light, a light unapproachable that put me to my face in the ground, the Jews are thinking in their mind one thing. This individual, this being who appeared to Paul can only be the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So when Paul says, Who are you, Lord? The Jews are waiting to hear the answer to that question. In their mind, it can only be one person. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So when Paul says, Who are you, Lord? The Jews would be listening. Who is who is this being? Who is this individual that appeared to Paul? Who is this individual that dwells in light unapproachable? Who is this individual that is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? I'm Jesus, whom you're persecuting. That leaves them with only one conclusion. They put to death their God in human flesh. Now, that would make them mad. That's not what ends up making them mad. They don't get mad for a little bit yet in the chapter. But that would be enough to make them mad. That would convict them. And if Paul's treatment of Christians equaled persecution of Christ, then by implication, their treatment of him equals persecution of Christ. So now they understand. We are persecuting Paul, and we are actually venting our hostility, our anger, and our hatred, not toward Paul, but to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's convicting, isn't it? Who are you, Lord? I'm Jesus, whom you're persecuting. (laughs) And it all just vanishes. Now, friends, here's what you and I share in common with Paul. We don't share in common the bright light, the voice. We don't share in common a revelation of heaven and seeing the risen Christ. I, I, I doubt and I would be highly suspect if any individual here was converted in anything like that. I don't think you were. But here's what we do share in common with Paul. Paul was brought face to face with the reality of his sin. Lying on the road to Damascus. That's what he has now been made to realize. Just who it is that he is sinning against and just what it is that he has done. That is what Christ has confronted him with. He now sees his sin for what it is. He now sees himself for what he is. He now realizes that everything he thought was righteousness... Everything he thought was good, zeal, and to his credit, has now been wasted. It has all been blown away. It has all been made nothing. And he stands emotionally and spiritually naked before the God of heaven, realizing his sin and all that his sin entails, and he was confronted with the reality of his sin. Now that's necessary because an individual cannot come to faith in Christ until they come face to face with their sin. That is why the gospel begins with the bad news and ends with the good news instead of the other way around. We don't tell people, trust in Jesus, He'll save you, and then once they get saved, say, oh, by the way, you're a sinner. We tell them that up front. There's no grace. There's no forgiveness. There's no remission of sins. The cross does nothing. The death of Christ does nothing for the impenitent man or woman. You have to be humble to receive grace. You have to be penitent to have your sins forgiven and washed away. And here's what Christ did with Saul. Brought him face to face with the reality of his sin. Now, when he said, I'm Jesus of Nazareth, whom you're persecuting, I don't know how much time elapsed between that statement and Paul's next question. But Paul's next question indicates to me at this point that he is saved. Look at his next question in verse 9 or verse 10. And I said, what shall I do, Lord? Did you catch that? Here was the one that he had been hating and persecuting and trying to kill, and now he's calling him Lord. What shall I do, Lord? 
Listen, that is the first question that rolls off of any saved individual's lips. When you come face to face with your sin and you have been saved and you have been turned from your wicked ways and God has brought you to faith in Christ and caused you to be born again to a living hope, when He has brought you forth by the word of grace, then the very first question that comes out of your mouth should be, and I think is, Lord, what do you want me to do? That's what Saul asks. He knew that he had not been saved just so he would stop persecuting Christians. He realized he had not been saved just because God wanted to give him eternal fire insurance. He realized he had been saved to serve. As he says to the Thessalonians when he describes their conversion experience, you turn from idols to serve the living and true God. Paul knows at this point that he was a a workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God had prepared beforehand for him to do. And now he just simply asks, what are they, Lord? What do you want me to do? And I don't think that that's an empty question. I think it's a genuine question. I think at this point, the Lord could have asked Paul to do anything and Paul would have done it immediately. He would have done it. Why? Because the first question that a redeemed heart asks is how can I serve my Redeemer? Lord, what is it you want me to do? And that's what Paul asks. You say it and I will go. Here I am, Lord. Send me. That's what Isaiah said. That's what Paul is saying. What shall I do, Lord? You name it, I'll do it. You say go and I'll go. You tell me to go somewhere, I'll go somewhere. You tell me what it is that you have stopped me for and I will devote my life to doing it. Lord, and listen, you don't say no to the Lord. Lord, that means master. That means you ask it and I will do it. Lord, what shall I do? Name it. And it's done. That's a redeemed heart. No excuses. No justifications. Paul doesn't stumble up off the dirt and say, all right, I've been thinking of some ways I can serve you. I'll do uh, this, or I'll do this, or I might be willing to do this. Um, Lord, here are the three things that I'm willing to do. These are the three areas that I'm willing to serve you in. Which of those three would you like? Paul doesn't present to the Lord any options. Paul doesn't dicker with the Lord and say, okay, well, I'm a little ways from home now. I'd like to go back home. I would like to get some things in order. I'd I'd kind of like to get married, raise a family. I'll I'll um, retire, then I'll buy an RV, and then I'll serve you, Lord, full time. Doesn't do any of that. Doesn't present his plan to the Lord. Doesn't present any justifications to the Lord. Doesn't present any options to the Lord. Paul doesn't even bring up the things that he's been thinking about ways of serving. He just simply asks, "What? What do you want me to do, Lord?" And when you put "Lord" at the end of that, you don't dare disobey, because you don't say no. Lord, you're my master, but I'm saying no. You're the master. You tell me what I'm going to do, and I will dicker with you to see if that's something that I want to work into my plans, if they work for me, if they're convenient. Lord, what do you want me to do? That's the plea of a humble man. The Lord answers this question. Get up and go into Damascus, and it will be told all that has been appointed for you to do. Appointed for you. Paul You are my workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand for you to do. Here's what I want you to do. The Lord had a a list, a task, a mission, a ministry, a purpose, something He was going to fulfill for Paul. And the Lord says, this is what you're appointed to do. These are the works that you're going to do. Here's what I'm going to do through you. Go into Damascus, and it will be told all that I've been appointed you to do. So Paul did that. He got up and he was led by the hand, 
by those who were traveling with him. Because of the blindness of the light, he couldn't see. He was the only one who was blinded. And so here is the, the most ironic picture of pictures. Saul of Tarsus, prideful Pharisee, dressed in all of his robes, dressed with all of his ribbons and everything that hang off of him, all of the phylacteries, walking cleanly into the city of Damascus with his papers in his hand. Everybody's fleeing from his presence. Nobody wants to be near him because he is a man to be feared and a man to be reckoned with. And oh, what a difference a day makes. Now face down in the dust, he stands up, dirty, humbled, and blind. And who could fear this man now? Nobody could fear him. Because he's been humbled. And now he's completely dependent on somebody else for the simple task of walking into a city. He thought he was going to make this grand entrance into the city. He thought he was going to be welcomed into the city by all of the Jews who loved him and loved what he was doing. And now he has led dirty and I think disheveled right into the presence of the city and he's blind and he's dependent upon others. And friends, that's something that the Apostle Paul is going to get used to being and that's dependent. All of his independence melted away. All of his pride melted away. All of his righteousness became nothing. And suddenly he's dependent on somebody else because the will and the life of Saul of Tarsus bent and was broken by the will of a sovereign God who set him apart and wanted him in service. And God said, Saul, you're mine, and I'm going to bring you to myself. He didn't dicker with the Lord, did he? What is it that turns a persecutor into a preacher? What is it that turns a Christ-hater into a member in the body of Christ? Friends, it is the same thing that turned you and I from rebellious, God-hating sinners into saints who are saved by grace in the church of Jesus Christ. It is the omnipotent, sovereign, gracious hand of God who called us to Himself. And He reached down in mercy and grace and saved us completely by that grace. And I don't know about you, but I am humbled and I am thankful for that grace. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for Your Word and we are grateful for Your grace. And Lord, we have nothing to offer to You And if it were not for Your grace, we would have ended up just like Saul of Tarsus, hating You, fully exercising our depravity and our wickedness, confident in our own self-righteousness, our own works, our own standing before You. And Father, we thank You that there came a time in our lives when You stripped us of all of our self-righteousness and made us to see the reality of our nakedness before You as unworthy, depraved, and wicked sinners who so desperately needed Your grace. We thank You for that grace, and we thank You, God, that in time You stepped into our world and purchased our salvation on a cross, and that in time You brought that salvation to us by conviction of the Holy Spirit and by the power of Your Word. Thank You, as James says, that in the exercise of Your will, You brought us forth by the Word of truth. We are grateful for that, humbled by that, And we thank you this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.